Hello and welcome to the show this week. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest, first guest of 2024, started the year quite well. His party, political party, uh, has just gone into third place in the polls. Uh, Richard Tice uh, is leader of the Reform Party. Obviously, before that, he was chairman of the Brexit Party and the Brexit Party MEP. Thank you very much for coming. It's Great coming pleasure to, to be with you. First Thank guest you. this year. First guest. Um, Polls, schmoles, you know, but it's still pretty good that you've gone into... Yes, look, they, they bounce up and down, but there is a, an exciting, consistent, relentless trend upwards. Right. And if you look back where we were a year, eight months ago, yes. but now we're consistently in the 10, 11% range and equaling or outpacing the Lib Dems who basically have gone nowhere. And I'm pretty sure, and this will be the first prediction I make, and let's hope that uh, it's uh, proven right, within a matter of weeks, certainly four to eight weeks, we'll have our first 12% poll, possibly 13% poll. Mm. Just the sense of momentum, the sense of something's happening yes. out there, the contacts we're getting, the messages, the emails, the anecdotes, people are absolutely desperate for change. Mm. People know the country is broken. They know that what we call Starmageddon is uh, fearfully just around the corner. And what I say to people very clearly, look, if you want change, you've got to vote for it. And that word is spreading and it's spreading fast. And I think we're giving, we're giving hope to people who have lost all faith in the main two parties. Uh, what would this Starmageddon look like? Look, the reality is both main parties are a catastrophic cocktail of no growth. Mm. You've got record high taxes. Mm. You've got record high wasteful government spending, mm. record regulations, many of them EU DART regulations that the Tories have utterly betrayed us all by not getting rid of. And you've got mass immigration that no one voted for. And again, a complete betrayal of Brexit by the Tories. And then finally, the, the fifth and final burden on the country is the vast job-destroying cost of net zero, which is in the trillions, no one knows how many trillions, mm. which is making us all poorer and colder as we speak. You cannot grow an economy mm. at all with those five burdens. Mm -hmm. No one's ever done that before. And we're seeing that in recent data that just came out by the ONS just before Christmas, where actually they revised the GDP data downwards for the second quarter of 2023 in, uh, in July to September 23. Actually, that was negative growth. October was negative growth. I think we're going to see the same for, for November and December at best flat. And when you've got the Chancellor sort of extolling the virtues, we're growing. Well, we're not actually. We're flatlining at best per head because of mass immigration, mm. we're getting poorer. Because if the economy, if the cake is the same size at the end of the year compared to the beginning of the year, and you've imported a city the size of Birmingham, give or take one and a quarter million people, yeah. per head, we're all poorer. And that continues. So look, our fear is that not only are we not growing and that you can't grow, Starmageddon will make all those situations even worse. And the country needs to wake up. Because if we don't grow and we keep borrowing the amount we're borrowing at the moment, which is around about £150 billion in this financial year, 
and I fear it'll be the same next year. That's about 5% of the size of our economy. Mm. You might get away with it for one year, but when the markets <coughs> suddenly realise, well, there's no growth, where's the growth coming from? then eventually people will say, enough's enough, you're done. You run out of cash, yeah. you run out of money. This is really serious. So we're saying to people, Starmageddon, it's a risk near you in 2024, wake up. Because if we don't change direction, sooner or later, we are literally gonna run out of money. Mm. To put it in context, the current national debt per household is about 100,000 pounds per household mm. on top of your mortgage. That's the national debt. So currently this year, we're gonna borrow per house another 5,000 pounds. You're paying interest on the 100 grand on the, on the national debt on your house. Mm. Every year, if you keep borrowing more, lobbing it onto the debt on your house already, eventually something goes wrong. Mm. Unless you grow, unless the value of your house keeps growing, Sooner rather than later, you end up in the doo-doo, and that's where the economy's heading. It's really serious, and that's the message I'm saying to people. You cannot grow an economy with these huge burdens. We've got to change course but, fast. But, but Richard, where, where would you say the, uh, how do I put it, where would you say the emotional response is then? Uh, where, where would you say, you know, what's the emotional message that you give from reform. I mean, you're talking economics, absolutely terribly important. Yeah, very simply, emotionally, it's all encaptured in our slogan, right? Mm. The Tories have broken Britain, Labour will bankrupt Britain, and our slogan says it on the tin, only Reform UK can save Britain. Mm. Let's save Britain. Let's save Britain culturally, let's save Britain mm. financially. Mm. That's the emotional, that's in the heart. Those of us that are patriotic, that believe in the nation state, believe in the greatness of the United Kingdom. We've got to save this mm. and we haven't got very long because otherwise we're losing it. And that's, we, we, are, we are at that stage where we've got to save Britain. I mean, what, what kind of time do you think we've got? How much time have we got? It's hard to tell, but we've got less time than people realize because when things turn downwards, if we head financially into a recession this year, which is eminently possible, particularly if there's any more geopolitical shocks that send energy prices higher, then I mean, this thing is, it's on a knife edge. And if we go into recession, the deficit numbers increase dramatically. Mm. And then that's, that's very bad news. So. Financially, it's on a knife edge. And I think culturally, mm. it's, you know, what, what's, what's going on with mass immigration that no one voted for, that's a total betrayal of Brexit and of, of our, our nation, is very, very serious because, but here's the thing, and nobody's actually talking about this properly. We all know that multiculturalism has failed. Tony Blair said it, Cameron said it, Dame Louise Casey said it, Sula Braverman said it. Mm. Anybody who's brave enough will say huge immigration where people live in silos, where they don't learn the language, where they're not able to be absorbed into their, into their villages, their towns, their communities, where, where they, they don't uh, get into the workplace. That's a disaster. Now, a multi-ethnic uh, Britain that links and, and joins 
and buys into a single British culture that, you know, in terms of who we are, our sense of decency, of respect, of tolerance, of fair play, that buys into our heritage, our history, where we've come from, what we stand for, our, 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 our legal structure, the fact that we've got probably the best legal system. We're respected all over the world. There's a reason for that. And I know it sounds a bit twee, but actually there is a sense of fair play in the game of cricket. Mm. Where yes, of course it's competitive. Mm. Of course there's a bit of banter at the crease with the wicketkeeper. Mm. But fundamentally there is a sense of, is it fair play? Is it within the rules of cricket? And actually that encapsulates who we are as a nation. Mm -hmm. We have that real sense of tolerance, of respect, of compassion. That's why, relative to our size, we have become so great. Um, but if you have mass immigration uh, that doesn't come under and buy into that single British culture, then you are diluting it, you are, uh, you're damaging it. And, and I fear that's actually what is happening at the moment because the quantity we're talking about mm. is so great. Not only is it depressing British wages, it's putting huge pressure on housing, on public services, health, schools. But if people don't buy it, you then start to get the sort of tensions that we've seen, the tensions around the, uh, the Batley teacher and the extreme uh, Islamists who objected to him showing the cartoon of the mm. Prophet Muhammad. You saw it in, in Leicester with the tensions between the Hindus mm. and the Muslims. You're seeing it every weekend mm. with these pro-Palestine, I believe pro-Hamas marches, the tensions there, uh, which are horrific. And that's what's happening mm. if people don't buy into a single British culture. How? It's really serious. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were genuinely taken aback, particularly during the, the um, you know, the Israel-Gaza uh, demonstrations, um, when they sort of looked and thought, well, who are these people? And also, how come they're allowed to say these things? Um, I just wonder, when you say Biden... I wasn't, I wasn't taken aback. Let me tell you why. I went on the very first demonstration on Monday, October the 9th, around High Street, Ken, and I was harangued within two or three minutes of asking some questions. And I thought, this is not right. This is bad. Mm. And... By that Friday, I called for these marches to be to be banned on the basis that they would incite hatred and violence and anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I've been proven completely right. Mm -hmm. And look, free speech, I'm all for. The right to protest, I'm all for. Mm -hmm. But that does not give you the right to break the law and to incite anti-Semitism and violence. Mm -hmm. And some of these placards, some of the chants, it's interesting, isn't it? That in other countries across Europe, it's now illegal to chant from the river to the sea. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so people need to buy into British culture. Uh, I mean, with respect, that's not a, a new idea. I mean, we, we've been saying it for a very long time. But at the same time, how will you do that? How, how will you do it now? I mean, there, even, what was it, say, like 10, 15 years ago, even Labour was saying people really should learn English. You know, it seems rather archaic now. Um, that's gone way gone now. I mean, it doesn't even appear to be any kind of effort at all. So. Doesn't mean with proper leadership, it can't come so back. You, Look, there's a massive difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the main two parties is 
they think that saying a speech and talking about it is enough. Sometimes you've actually got to follow it up with action. You've got to get stuff done. And sometimes that requires legislation. And other countries in Europe that have also seen very high immigration levels are now recognizing the problems and the challenges that that brings. Mm. And they're starting to legislate. And we need to, if we want to protect our great British culture, who we are, mm. uh, and, and how we can be great again, then we've got to have the courage to tell it as it is. Mm. And we've got to be simple, clear about it. If you don't want to buy into the great British culture, in the nicest possible way, yeah. there's 195 other countries you can go and live in. Yes. And I know that'll upset some people, tough. Mm, yes, I mean, this, this is the point, you know, where do people usually learn this? They learn it, well, at home, but at school. And it seems now that our schools, the idea that they would promote British history and culture seems to be sort of uh, inconceivable. It seems to be going the it other way. It just requires leadership. It's very simple. It requires but a how? Secretary of State for mm. Education to say to, to put it into the guidance, yeah. right, and to tell Ofsted, this is what's going to be taught and to change some of this stuff. Mm. And if the teachers don't like it and are not prepared to teach it, go and teach somewhere else. Yes. You're fired, right? It's as simple as that. And until someone has the courage to tell people, whether it's in the civil service who won't cut costs, or whether it's in our schools who won't teach proper British history, go and do something else. You're not working on our payroll, you're fired. Mm. No one else is brave enough to tell it like it is. Mm. And until we do that, we are in deep, deep, trouble mm. it's it's it seems to me that you know th i know that gove tried didn't he with the kind of blob the educational blob you know the, the left-wing blob but it seems absolutely stubbornly to still be there and obviously we've now got a case where kids are being taught for example about critical race theory and gender ideology i mean what should happen there the and, and, I'm asking and there are certain tories i tell you what look there are certain tories who talk the talk on this mm. senior figures Kemi Badenox talks the talk on it, but you've got to follow it through. Mm. It requires leadership from the top mm. that says, yes, we're going to talk about it and we're going to do it. Mm. The problem is if you've got a wet and feeble education secretary, like we've got at the moment, then not only do you talk this nonsense about critical race theory mm. in our schools, but also you allow this frankly dangerous gender ideology and questioning and social yeah. transitioning to permeate like an infectious poison mm. through our primary and secondary schools. Mm. And it's incredibly simple to stop, mm -hmm. right? You literally have to say, I've been a governor of a number of schools. Right. I've read all the safeguarding policies. This gender questioning and social transitioning is the greatest breach of safeguarding that I've ever seen, mm. right? And I've read these rules. Mm -hmm. So you just need a prime minister that's got the guts to instruct the Secretary of State for Education to say you write to Ofsted, you write to every single head teacher of every primary and secondary school, this is banned this week, right? You're not allowed to do it. Right. If you do, you're fired. Mm -hmm. Proper, clear instructions. Mm -hmm. Because the, I tell you what, the vast, vast majority of parents are horrified mm -hmm. by what is going on in our schools. Absolutely horrified. Furious, but feel completely powerless to do anything about it. That's why you have to elect strong leaders who are going to have the courage to follow it through. And it seems to me we're the only party that is crystal clear on this. 
The Prime Minister said last March that this was urgent, he was going to carry out a review. My definition of urgent is either today or this week. Ten months later, they've just released a little woolly-wobbly consultation on the issue, which means it probably won't see the light of day before the general election. And even then, they weren't prepared to tell it as it is, because some members of this, this cabinet, of this so-called Conservative Party, still believe that actually this social transitioning of children from one sex to another is okay. It's not. Mm -hmm. It is simply not. If you're an adult, fine. Do what you like. Mm -hmm. But I'm very clear. There are only two sexes and there's only two genders. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, the vast, vast majority of parents up and down the country 100% agree with me. You see, the thing is, Richard, I, I think that, you know, it's very interesting to hear you talk like this because, you know, with respect, I feel that people possibly don't know that you think that. Do you know, I mean, the, 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 in a way that, you know, when I was at your press conference, it was very, you had a lot of people from the, the media there. I mean, they were, it was very popular. You had BBC and Sky and everything. It was broadly economic. Yeah. And I, I think that's obviously, I get that. But, you know, people, it would, they, it would really sort of like make them sit up if they, if they heard more that you would. So, so here's the thing. Basically, you can only deliver one message at a time. Right. That's, the media can only absorb one message at a time. Beginning of the year, election year, I wanted to make highlights that Starmageddon is a serious risk to the country. Mm. It's a serious economic risk. Mm. That's the message there. But you're right. You know, I've, got, I've got, as we talk about more different things, more different things infuriate me. And the state of the country has just deteriorated in front of our eyes. Mm. And so between now and the election, which we can come on to the timing of that, we're going to be talking individually about all of these issues because there is so much, bluntly, that requires reform across all of these areas. So, yeah, we are talking about it louder and louder. And many people think about politics for one or two minutes a week. They're oh, busy yes. in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and what we've got to do is get that message out there. And I think over time, we will. But look, it's, no, it's, you're right, it's not easy. And also, you have to box clever. Mm. We, we don't want to be pigeonholed mm. in, into a, you know, a particular insular box because we've got a lot to say mm. about a lot of different issues about how to improve the way the country is run. Uh, another issue um, which, you know, it, it does preoccupy me, I mean, education, yes, parents, uh, is what appears to be a collapse of law and order. Um, and in particular, something that I've been droning on about myself for years on the assembly and all of that, um, is the way in which the police, and we saw this over the past, what, a couple of months before Christmas, appear to have uh, a kind of preferential uh, policing now when it comes to different points of view. Would you go along with that? I mean, do, it seems that they have more or less given up on what you would call what they're meant to do actually protecting people and it almost seems that they are now just enforcing various particular viewpoints. Yeah, I think most people would say it's pretty clear <coughs> when you sit with a couple of mates what should the police do well ideally they'll be sufficiently visible on the streets that they actually prevent crime but you can't prevent everything sadly mm. and when crime does happen mm. then you're going to catch the criminals mm. and that's what the leadership of the police should be totally focused on and 
it requires courageous leadership again. And we're just not seeing that. You know, brave frontline police officers, men and women, they need the leadership to know what the boundaries are. Mm. And we saw it with these, these pro-Hamas demonstrations. And I will tell it as it is, if you ask the majority of those people on the demonstrations, they would not condemn Hamas. Mm. And they're quite happy for Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, mm -hmm. to continue to govern Gaza. Nothing will ever change until that happens. So those people are pro-Hamas. And you, yeah, the police need real leadership. What we actually need is, I would say, almost mandatory that chief constables should be former officers from the armed forces. Mm. They understand about discipline, about leadership, about logistics, about yeah. making things happen. Mm. And that's what we need in the police force. At the moment, we haven't got that. Mm. We've got, and where you've got a, a vacuum of leadership, bad things happen mm. in any walk of life. Mm. And policing has collapsed again in front of our eyes. And the charge rate has dropped in the last five to 10 years from about 15% mm. of crimes to about five or 6%. I mean, it's, that's the charge rate, not the conviction rate, mm. which is even less than that. Mm. I mean, this is woeful. I mean, do you, do you think we are living in a lawless society now? Yes, I do. In, in the last two weeks, two senior members of the Reform Party have been mugged on, really? on, on prime streets in central oh, London. Alex, I believe. Yeah. Alex and, Phillips. Yes. And, and so it's just, it's unbelievable. Mm. And, but I'm afraid, no, suppose, as I'm walking down the street now, I'm consciously walking close to the building rather than the edge of the pavement because you're less likely for some toe rag on a, on a bicycle or a moped to, to ride up onto mm. the pavements and try and nick your phone or, or whatever. So yeah, I'm very conscious of it. And again, it's just a complete failure of leadership. It, and actually, I don't think it's a lack of money. It's just the money's being spent so badly. You don't need to, play, to paint police cars in rainbow flags. Mm. You don't need to paint pedestrian cross crossings mm. in rainbow flags or trains. We haven't got the money nor the time yep. to do this stuff. Just mm. focus on your job, which is to prevent crime and catch criminals. It's as simple as that. So you'd have uh, like uh, the Met Commissioner be a, uh, a former army or... Ideally, army. unless there's no one suitable, I think as a standing principle. And here's the thing, that's how it used to be. Mm. 50 mm. to 60 mm. years ago, mm. pretty much a standing principle. Mm. And likewise, we should be encouraging former officers and members of the armed forces, again, who understand discipline and, and responsibility and courage, get them into all, all parts of, of the police. Mm. They've got so much to offer, offer and it's, it's not an easy job. Mm. You know, it does require some courage to stand in the uniform on the front line, particularly with some of these demonstrations. There's all sorts of stuff. Mm. I was talking to someone else the other day, actually, genuinely, once you've, you know, you've had your demo for a bit, fine, you can still demonstrate, but why should the taxpayer keep funding all of these pro-Palestine marches? After maybe a month, maybe you've got to chip in yourself mm. if you want to keep banging on. Mm. You see, w when you saw those marches, uh, you know, there, there was a perfect case where uh, police were in Trafalgar Square, someone had to starve David, they absolutely nipped it in the bud straight mm -hmm. away and said you can't have that here it's a heritage site or something like this and yet the other demonstrators were allowed to clamber over all the statues yep. the police are lame now is that just it's because uh, they're fearful 
they're fearful. The truth was on, on that occasion, because they didn't have the numbers. Mm. The demonstration was so big and they didn't have the numbers and they knew they could do nothing about mm. it. Mm. And again, that's about the leadership. Mm. First of all, it was obvious what was going to happen. I foresaw it. I'm not a rocket scientist. Mm. I'm not a chief constable. If I could foresee it, mm. they jolly well should have been able to foresee it. Mm. So it was just utter failure at every level. Mm. And so you've got discriminatory policing out of fear. Yeah, you, don't, you police without fear or favour and you apply the rules equally. That's the, the foundation of trust mm. in policing. Mm. Of course, the right to protest. But you haven't got the right to demand discriminatory policing yes, yeah, yeah. and you haven't got the right to break the law. Mm. And when you look at the cost of these demonstrations now, week in, mm. week out, then actually start to say, hang on, folks. It's like the Extinction Rebellion protests and the Just Stop Oil mm. protests. Look, make your point. But why on earth should we, the taxpayer, continue to fund this? Mm. Money's tight. We're running out of cash. And actually, I don't want people being mugged on the street. I don't want teenagers being knifed to death. Every day now, mm. we're hearing someone else in London dying mm. under the knife. Actually, I think that's probably a bit more important. Um, can I just go back a bit? You, you, you started by mentioning immigration, um, and there is that cultural side to it and the economic side. Um, there was a poll just done before Christmas, which was actually quite extraordinary, although maybe not extraordinary, but it showed that 53% of people asked in this poll uh, wanted a total halt right, to immigration, what you might say a moratorium. Now, where does your policy stand in relation to that? Our policy is clear. We would freeze all non-essential immigration, one in, one out. That's called smart immigration, because about 400 to 450,000 people emigrate every year. So you could welcome in where we've got genuine shortfalls mm. of skills, mm. a similar number, applied over a three to four year cycle, of course. And whilst you train up your own people, what that does is keep the size of the population where it is now. And we've got a record population at the moment, but we've got a record number of economically inactive people and people on benefits. That means we haven't got a people shortage, we've got a willing worker shortage. And far too many people who are coming to the UK at the moment are actually, um, they are taking a great deal from the state, which is costing us taxpayers money, and they're not contributing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're, we're very clear. You've got to freeze non-essential immigration, one in, one, one out. You've got, you've got lots of people to play with there, 400, 450,000 people. So if you've got healthcare shortages, well, first of all, we should be training our own, but in the interim, fine. And, and here's the thing, when you create a shortage of something, the price of that goes up. So if wages for British people goes up, that's a good thing. If businesses then bleat and say we can't afford it, let me tell you what happens. Basic economics, they start to invest in capital equipment. Mm. So if you can't get fruit pickers, all of a sudden you invent machines that will, uh, that will pick the grapes in the wonderful new vineyards that are appearing all over southern England. That's how it works. It's how the combine harvester mm. appeared a mm. hundred years ago. Mm. So we shouldn't be afraid of that. This, this idea that big business is addicted to the cocaine-like drug of cheap, low-skilled overseas immigration, we've got to have the courage to say, enough. Mm. Mm. 
Well, of course, people were voting for that, weren't they, back in 2016? They were. They didn't vote for mass immigration. They'd been utterly yes. betrayed oh, deliberately yeah. by these Tories. But the thing is, maybe I'm being dense here, but if you're saying, on the one hand, a freeze on non-essential, but then you have this one in, one out. Now, it seems to me, Richard, that, like, if you have, like, I think at one point your policy was called net zero migration or something. If you have, if you have a million com people coming in and a million going out, that you've got net zero migration, haven't you? I mean, but surely that is not what you mean. Look, in, in numerical terms, yeah, th that is one in, one out. Yes. Um, and, but the reality is that 400,000 leaving the country has been the same for a very long, that's a long-term average. But can so, I say that, but do people, people watching would, see, would say, yeah, let's be honest, let's be frank, shall we? The 450 whatever coming in are one type of people. The 450 going are probably majority, maybe British people who've just had enough. But the people coming in, you want them to come into where you've got genuine skill shortages. Mm -hmm. It's what I come back to this key word, smart immigration, mm -hmm. not cheap, low-skilled immigration. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and that's, uh, bluntly, the whole point about a point-based skilled worker visa system mm -hmm. is that it has to be way above the average national mm -hmm. salary. The Tories deliberately set it way, way below. And again, because you've got to make work pay for British people. Mm. Whereas what's happening at the moment, it's way too easy to sign up for benefits. Mm. And for too many people, because of the tax system and the income tax threshold starting yeah. too low, work doesn't pay. That's why you've got to increase the threshold from where you start paying income tax to 20,000 pounds from 12 and a half thousand pounds. That's an extra 30 pounds a week. That will get young British people into work immediately. That's, that's one of the key things to help young people. And you've got to be brave about that. So there might be some years where 400,000 leave and you only welcome in 200,000. You see you've a lot got of people to say that's it. still too many, you know? No, but but, but, but it, mean, you know, that, that's, a, that's a net decline. And look, those, I mean, those numbers have been, as I said, that's, that would be a net decline of a couple of hundred thousand. If you look at the the 40 to 50 year average, it would be somewhere between 20 and 100,000. Mm. That would be the sort of, right, pe people, that's a net positive coming in. And the population crept up until basically the early 2000s when the numbers dramatically increased. And now we've got a record population. So we're the only party that is saying, you've got to freeze it. Mm. And, and within that, you've got to be smart about the skills that you want to take very clear on it yeah um, where would you say I mean ha, when you say freeze it uh, what kind of a period are we talking about Richard well you, you would probably measure it over an electoral cycle mm. right mm. sort of somewhere between four to five years mm. you could actually have a bit of if if you wanted to sort of finesse it a bit more you could price it a bit like Ryanair airline seats so that let's say your numbers four hundred thousand well, the first 200,000, the cost of the visa is X. Mm. But as you, as you approach towards the end of the year, your maximum number, the price soars a bit like when you've got the last two or three seats on an airplane. Mm. So there's a bunch of ways you can do it. We can get into the detail of it. But as a key principle, I think that's what the majority of people would say. That sounds sensible. Look, if, if we've got a real shortage of nurses or doctors and it takes a while to train them, then yeah, we need to get some extra, extra focus on that.
uh, or if we've got a key focus on on life sciences and we need another yeah. 10,000 specialists in that from around the world, then understand that until we can train our own. And if we've got a, a, a really dynamic, high growth tax policy, tax policy that wants to bring in lots of entrepreneurs, excellent. But all of that is adding value, creating growth, making the whole nation better off. I think uh, obviously there are these two sides, cultural and economic. And you know, one of the great mantras of our time, which is used often to justify well, mass immigration, is diversity is our greatest strength. You hear it all the time. Would, do you think diversity is our greatest strength? Well, there's a thing out there now in the sort of corporate world and the world of the civil service called equality, diversity and inclusion. Mm. And what it's actually leading to is a complete collapse of performance productivity yeah. and that as a concept, frankly, that's damaging us. We should, we should scrap that. Look, we welcome different ideas, different thoughts, but I come back to the cultural point. Under one single British culture, people are lucky enough to live in the UK, which is a great, great privilege, whether we're born here, or whether you come to live here. Actually, people have got to buy into that culture and to drive it forwards as an amazing nation. So. Diversity of ideas and things, fantastic. Multi-ethnicity under that single British culture. What doesn't work and what damages a nation and a culture is if you can't absorb the high levels of immigration, if you've got people living in individual silos, mm. uh, not only speaking, what, not speaking the, the language of the nation, in this case English, uh, speaking their own language, and then starting to demand things, mm. demand that signage, in certain areas, mm -hmm. in public buildings and in hospitals, is in their language. Mm -hmm. And then we're not far away, and this is really serious, we're not far away from certain communities demanding that actually maybe a different type of rule of law, mm -hmm. their own rule of law, starts to be applied. In this case, what really worries me is suggestions that certain wards and certain communities and constituencies might like Sharia law. Yeah. And we've got to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually we've got to, we may work, we, the implication is we've got one English legal system. Mm. We're not far away from people saying, no, I want Sharia law in my patch. That's mm. where the majority of us are. That's what we believe in. And I think actually proper leadership will say, no, not only are we not going to have that, we need to legislate to absolutely ban it. We operate under the single English legal system ban sharia we should make it explicit that it is not allowed in this country it's mm. quite clear in some areas some people now want it it may well be that some people are already beginning quietly to operate under it oh i think and, there are about 60 sharia courts i think and and that has to be banned mm, mm. if you want that there are other places where you can enjoy that mm, mm. Um, you're standing in all constituencies, aren't you? We are, six yeah. across the whole of England, Scotland and Wales, not Northern Ireland. And 630. Right. I'm standing in Hartlepool. Oh, you're standing in Hartlepool? I'm standing in which is where I stood in December 19. Yes. Right. And do you have any idea at all where your, your sort of support is strongest or where it's concentrated or is it not? Actually, it's strongest in some of the Labour heartlands, the mm. strong Brexit heartlands Red Wall, for example. of the Red Wall seats, the coastal mm. seats, very strong there. And that, that's more for, for cultural reasons, 
but for economic reasons, we're gaining real strength actually uh, amongst the young who feel the main parties have shafted them. Mm -hmm. And also uh, those in the sort of traditionally blue wool seats, uh, traditional conservatives who understand about the basics of economics. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the thing, right? Smart tax cuts that create growth more than pay for themselves mm. over and over again. And that's what creates growth. Mm. So we, we're appealing to different groups in different areas, but word is spreading and it is spreading fast. And because of things, certain of our policies, we're actually another party that best looks after ordinary workers. Mm. Uh, for example, our, our income tax policy, you don't pay any tax, income tax, until you're earning 20 grand a year. Mm. That's still only two thirds of the af average national salary. Mm. So, yes. When it, when it comes to, you're always asked this question, aren't you? Hear it, you know, you can hear it coming. You know, uh, at the press conference, a lot of people want to know about Nigel Farage and what, what he's going to be doing. I mean, he is president of the party, isn't he? He's president, he's honorary president. Yes, he's honorary president, honorary that's president right. Of the yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, there are these little odds and sods, sort of little stories going on about him maybe having a go with the Tory party again at some point. I mean, that's a bit frustrating, isn't it? I mean, no, not at all. It's look, it's fantastic. Firstly, because all the press love to talk about him at the Tory party conference. He was like a spy, mm. undercover spy on a mission, mm. but cleverly in plain sight. Mm -hmm. So uh, and, and secondly, it means people are talking about reform. Mm. That's helping spread the word. Mm. So that is all good news. And but Nigel is, is as furious as all of us at how the country is being run. The idea that he's going to sit on the sidelines, on the touchlines, and just watch this election play out, I think is for the birds. And the more help he can give, the better. Because the country is in a terrible state. It's a massive job getting the message out there. Because it takes time to, to permeate the message, to speak to different groups of people with different anxieties. Mm. And as I say, the more help he can give, the better. Uh, so, so much the better, you know, so much the, uh, so, so much he, the greater. He could be like a sort of a Kissinger, Henry Kissinger figure to a, I was going to say Richard Nixon, but that's a very <laughs> no, bad, it's a bad example. No, no, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So he'd be like an older statesman, like going around, maybe campaigning for you? Or? The, he's, he's a, he's a great campaigner. He's done the most political campaigning of all politicians, mm -hmm. frankly, uh, on the pitch today. Mm -hmm. And his, his sense of judgment and timing is second to none. So. The more we can get, the better, and that means people will be talking about reform. Mm. And the situation, it wasn't Nigel's plan A by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Like many of us, when the Tories said they were going to get Brexit done, we trusted them, and it's mm. turned out that actually was a, was a mistake. Yes, yes. Legally, we've left, with the exception of Northern Ireland, that is handcuffed to the European Union, practically. They haven't taken advantage of any of the great opportunities. Do you think it was a mistake now, looking back, for the Brexit Party to stand down all those people? No, we, we, we had to get, we had to make sure that we left. Mm. Don't forget the forces of Corbyn and the Lib Dems, they wanted us not to leave. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was, that had to be done. Mm. But the mistake was trusting them. The mistake mm. was then essentially pausing for 18 to 24 months. And whereas actually we we should have we should have kept a uh, a tougher sort of rein on them, but it was look it was hard for everybody. Covid came along, 
everybody got distracted, some shocking things happen. And I remind people, we were the first party to question lockdowns. Mm. And then we questioned, uh, you know, we questioned the vaccine strategy and we questioned vaccinating young people and children. We were the first people to do that. And we took some serious flack for it. Mm. And so I just want to remind people of that. And then, you know, we were the first people to say, you sh shouldn't be doing lockdowns like this. We should be releasing. You know, I funded a helicopter to show the size of the, of the biggest anti-lockdown march. And then the main media, they had to admit that it was going on. There was anxiety about mm. it. This stuff was difficult. We all mm. forget this. Mm. We're the first people to call for an inquiry into the excess deaths that's going on at the moment. We have to be brave enough to say, look, there are serious issues with the harms from some of the vaccines mm. and we've got to talk about it. Mm. We've got to have an inquiry into it. Um, one final thing, Richard, um, <clears throat> do you, your deputy Ben has talked about obliterating, wanting to obliterate Tory party. <clears throat> would you say that that is what you would like? I, would you like to replace Tory party or do you want to be someone who really pushes it and kicks it into... No, you, you have to punish incompetence and failure mm. and betrayal. And that's what we've had from this lot of Tories. Mm. And they have to be punished. Mm. They have to be ousted. And we want proportional representation so that more people will vote, so that every vote mm. is equal. And then look, we all believe in competition. Mm. And here's the point. The Conservative Party does not own the philosophy of conservatism. Mm. They arrogantly think they do. They don't. And if they're not good enough for the job, then someone else will come up and replace them. First past the post is difficult. Mm. I hate the way that people say, oh, but they're worse. Don't vote out of fear. Vote positively for what you believe in. And that's why you've got to have proportional representation. Mm. And look, if we get to the scenario where we get five, six million votes and under first past the post, technically, regrettably, it's possible we ended up with naught MPs. I think the country would be furious, mm. fuming mad, mm. and it's not sustainable. That is going to change. I think it'll change in the next electoral cycle, and the sooner the better. I think uh, also the um, the idea, you know, that, oh, at least you know, don't vote for if you, if you don't vote for us, you'll get Labour. I think that has no resonance now. No resonance at all. I you can't trust a word these people yeah, say. Yeah. They've broken the country, mm. and the truth is, and this is what we try to highlight. Both of them are forms that I call them the, the socialist twins. Mm. And they're both an economic and cultural catastrophe for the country. And people need to vote to wake up. But if people want change, they've got to vote for it. Well, look, all the best, Richard. Thanks very, very Thank much. You. If you could stay there, because we've got a couple of questions for our uh, members, exclusive content for our members. But uh, thank you very much. Uh, that's it for this week. We should be back as usual. Uh, next week. So in the meantime, have a good week, won't you? Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, 
free copies of our books and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.